Please turn with me in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. We've been working our way through this middle section of the prophecy of Micah in our Advent season. And this morning we come to that passage that contains the most familiar verse of Micah's prophecy, verse 2, which identifies Bethlehem as the place where the Messiah would be born 700 years before that birth took place. Micah chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 1 through the very beginning of uh, verse 5. Give your attention to God's holy word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. During the ongoing media coverage after the shootings of the elementary school children in Newtown, Connecticut, one person, just regular person, not one of the parents, not one of the people associated with school, but just somebody from the community was interviewed one day and In the midst of that interview, he said this, sadly, Our wonderful town will now always be known for this. Our wonderful town will now always be known for this. I thought about that. What it would be like to have your hometown, the town that you live in, the town you've invested your life in, to have it join the ranks of places like Jonestown or Tiananmen Square or Littleton or Aurora, Colorado, places that are known for mass murder or massacre of people. But if you go back in history, isn't it interesting that there's another town that was known for massacre of children, the one that we're talking about these weeks leading up to Christmas. After crazy King Herod tried to use the wise men to locate the Messiah that they had believed had been born, the king, the great king that they were looking for, amazingly using this very passage of God's word to try to locate the Messiah so that he could kill the Messiah, as unthinkable as that is. After he failed in that scheme, he sent out an evil decree to have all the boys in the town of Bethlehem under the age of two put to death. You know what's interesting to me is that 
scholars believe, they've tried to calculate based on what they believe the population was of Bethlehem in the first century, they've tried to estimate how many boys were put to death. And the number they come up with consistently is about 20. It's just interesting to me that that's how many children were killed in Newtown. So we can really understand in a smaller town what that impact might have had. Our town will always be known for this. If you follow the redemption story of Scripture, it shouldn't be surprising that the birthplace of the Messiah, the one who would be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that that birthplace would bear a stigma of tragedy and suffering. Because that is a constant theme throughout the story of redemption. Salvation doesn't come by glorious victory in the eyes of the world. It comes through suffering. And it deals with the ugliness of evil. The least is the greatest. The humble are exalted. When it comes to the world's perspective... The kingdom of God is always upside down. And so it says here in today's passage in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, too little to even really be called a town is what that's saying, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. This is probably the most specific prophecy that we have in the entire Old Testament about the life of of the Messiah, exactly where he was to be born. I think Micah took some pleasure in announcing to the world that the Messiah was going to be born in an insignificant little town because remember we said at the beginning of our study that Micah was from Morasheth and nobody even knows where Morasheth was. It was so tiny and insignificant. So Micah was a small town guy and I'm sure there was a little bit of pleasure in his voice when he said, you know what? The Messiah, the Lord of Lords, is going to be born in Bethlehem. Another insignificant, forgettable little town. I'm a small town guy, so I get pleasure out of that too. I was born in a town where my public school, in my public school, my graduating class had 30 students. And there were only two schools in the entire county. Forest County has East Forest School, K-12, through and West Forest School, K-12. through And our county was so small, our towns were so small, there was only one stoplight in all of Forest County when I was growing up, and it was in the other town, not my town. I didn't even grow up in that town. I grew up six miles outside of that town. So I'm a small-town guy, and so Micah is one of my favorite prophets, and I take some pleasure, too, in saying that the Lord of Lords was also a small-town guy. Bethlehem was known for being the place where Messiah was to be born. And the only other thing it was known for was for the massacre of children under the age of two. Unlike us, Jesus chose where he was going to be born. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And he chose the very place where he was going to be born. 
And there's intention to that. Bethlehem is meant to communicate something to us about him and about his mission, about what he was sent to accomplish. So that's what I'd like to look at this morning, based on this passage and the fulfillment of it in the New Testament. What does the town of Bethlehem tell us about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the promised Messiah? First of all, it tells us that salvation... Redemption, salvation, which he was sent to accomplish, that salvation is for the meek, not the mighty. Salvation is for the meek, not the mighty. As we've been seeing, as we've been working our way through Micah's prophecies, we've seen that he's been telling the people not to trust in kings that are born in Jerusalem because they have become corrupt and rebellious. And certainly don't trust in the kings of places like Samaria or Damascus or Nineveh or Babylon. You see, as we said before, the people of Judah were in great crisis as Micah gave these prophecies because King Ahaz of Judah had put, instead of putting his trust in the Lord, has put his trust in the king of Assyria. And the result of that sinful choice was that now... The king of Assyria, his troops were surrounding Jerusalem, even as Micah gives these words. They had laid siege to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was on the verge of being exterminated and would have been exterminated, except that godly King Hezekiah trusted in the Lord and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord delivered Jerusalem for another hundred years. That's why verse 1 Basically, verse 1 is the morning headlines. Micah says, Siege has laid against, is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That, that image of the leader, the ruler, the judge, the king of Israel being struck on the cheek, it's the image, it's a very clear image to somebody from Old Testament times. It's the image of a conquered king who has had his hands and feet bound And therefore is defenseless when somebody strikes him on the cheek. It's a powerful image of helplessness and humiliation. That's what Micah is saying to the people of God. These are the worldly rulers. They're the ones who work on the world's terms. This is the worldly power and authority that you've looked to. And look at the state of those in whom you put your hope and trust. And it is an issue of trust, isn't it? All of life is about that. Where do you put your trust? In whom do you trust? What power? What authority? It's interesting, jumping forward to the fulfillment of this prophecy, King Herod was really the quintessential worldly leader, if you know any of his history. He was actually very gifted as a military leader, He was a gifted politician, he was a gifted diplomat, and he was known as a gifted builder. Much of the glory that Jerusalem knew in the first century was the result of the efforts of King Herod. He was the one who restored the temple. He had built palaces and fortresses around Jerusalem. He was known as a builder, and he had gained power... Even though he wasn't Jewish, he had gained power because he was intensely loyal to the Roman emperor. And the emperor had rewarded him with his 
limited reign over the land of Judea. You know, it's interesting, something that a lot of people aren't aware of, is that besides all of his glorious building in the city of Jerusalem, he actually went about 12 miles outside of the city of Jerusalem, and on a hill, he built a place called the Herodium. And the Herodium was a mountain or a hilltop um, fortress. It was a a very well-respected, well-built fortress. And within the fortress, there were palaces that were known for their ostentatious display of the king's glory. Do you know where the Herodium literally was? Right next to Bethlehem. And it was just a powerful image of the glory of earthly kings and earthly authority. And in the shadow of the Herodium, you have the manger where the newborn Messiah was born. That stark contrast between the world's power and authority and the power and authority that God had established through the sending of his son. It's really what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us about all of life when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's one of the most important reasons why Jesus chose to be born in Bethlehem. To show us that that's what life is about. That God doesn't use the mighty and the powerful and the wealthy and the influential and the popular to accomplish his purposes. The Lord uses the meek. He looks for the meek. That's what the Sermon on the Mount says. We read it earlier. It describes, the Sermon on the Mount, it describes life in the kingdom, life under the reign of the Messiah. What does it look like? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is given to us to show us. And in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek doesn't mean weak. Meek means humble. Meek means submissive. Meek means dependent. Humble and submissive and dependent upon the Lord. There is where you find true strength. Bethlehem teaches us that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In verse 4, it says that this Messiah, who was born and placed in a feeding trough as a bed, would one day reign in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. That's what Bethlehem teaches us. And I think it begs two questions. First of all, to those of you that are succeeding in life, succeeding in your education, 
succeeding in your family, succeeding in your business, succeeding in government, whatever area of life you're succeeding in, it begs this question, in what ways are you trusting in the world and what the world considers great, what the world considers important, what the world considers significant, what the world considers powerful, in what ways are you trusting in what the world tells you is of value for your significance and purpose in life? How are you measuring your success? And for those of you that see yourselves as failing, it begs the question, in what way are you using your failure or your littleness or your insignificance or your lack of resources or your lack of authority? In what ways are you using those things as an excuse to not serve the Lord? Jesus taught us that his kingdom is for the meek. And the meek are the ones who would inherit the earth. And we are to stand as meek people, humble, submissive, and dependent upon the Lord. And in those characteristics, we are strong. So that's the first lesson that Bethlehem teaches us. The second lesson that Bethlehem teaches us is that salvation comes through fulfillment of God's promises. Salvation comes by God's promise. That's where our confidence lies. That's where our assurance lies. Bethlehem was insignificant in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, in the eyes of those who have faith, those who are part of the covenant of promise, Bethlehem was immensely significant. It's interesting, if you just trace it back through Scripture, Jacob's wife Rachel was buried there as a testimony to the promises given to Jacob and Abraham, the the patriarchs. The story of Ruth, in all of its rich imagery of the redemption story, the story of Ruth takes place in Bethlehem. And David was born and raised in Bethlehem. It was the town of David. And remember that David was the least impressive of all his brothers. They didn't even bother to call him in from the fields when Samuel came to anoint the king of Israel. But through the ages, as the promise of grace was given to God's people, the promise that Bethlehem, the city of David, would be a key to the reign of the Messiah was held onto by faith. Matter of fact, as we saw in the, in the story of Herod, it was even held on to by those who didn't have faith. And I've always wrestled to understand how could Herod go to the Word of God to find out where the Messiah was born so he could kill the Messiah. It almost seems like you have, have to have faith in the Word of God in order to find out where the Messiah is going to be born so you can kill him. The only thing I can think of is that Herod obviously didn't believe himself, but he understood the people believed. And so his efforts... He didn't understand his efforts being against God's promise. He understood his efforts as being against the faith of the people. And so, as he tried to kill the Messiah, he was affirming the covenant promise, ironically. Clearly, the people believed this. They held on to it because it's interesting that when Jesus 
went public in his public ministry, people were still looking for a Messiah from Bethlehem, and it was confusing to them because Jesus was from Nazareth. That's where he grew up. Obviously, it wasn't known that he was born in Bethlehem before he grew up in Nazareth. Remember when Philip took the good news to Nathaniel, he said, we have found the Messiah. You remember how Nathaniel responded to that? Can anything good come out of Galilee where Nazareth is? And interesting, there's an interesting passage over in John chapter 7 where people began to be so amazed by the power and the miracles and the teaching of Christ. It says in verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really, this really is the prophet, the Messiah. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Can the Christ come from Nazareth? How, Jesus is up from Nazareth. How can this be true? Listen to the response. Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. In other words, he bore the signs of the Messiah, but he didn't have the birthplace of the Messiah, or so they thought. Bethlehem, as Jesus' chosen birthplace, is a confirmation that God's word is true. The promises given to Abraham, the promises of the Old Covenant, are all true. And he is the fulfillment of it. And just as the Old Testament people of faith held on to those promises, even when they couldn't possibly see them based on the evidence in front of their eyes, we too live by promise. Think about how your life is driven by the promises of God. You can only know that what he said is true because you trust in his faithfulness and his power to accomplish what he has said he would do. We live by promises every day. Everybody, people who say they have no faith in anything, still live by the promises of others. Confidence that something that hasn't yet happened will happen based on faith, not because you can actually see it and prove it with your own physical eyes. What happens when you push your brake pedal? You have confidence that your car is going to stop. That's faith. Faith in your mechanic, faith in the manufacturer of your car, faith in the laws of physics, but it's faith in things you can't see and prove right there in your moment as you push that pedal. You live by faith. You have faith that your paycheck's going to come next week. Faith in your employer, faith in the economy. You have faith that when you put your money in the bank, the bank's going to give it back to you when you need it. You live by faith. You have faith that when you dial 911, the police are going to come. Everybody lives by faith. And your confidence is all relative to your trust in the one who makes the promise that you base your faith upon. Faith, according to Scripture, is being sure of what you hope for, Hebrews 11, sure of what you hope for, and certain of what you do not see. What is that faith built upon except that the promise of the Word of God? You have confidence that those whom He has predestined, He also will call And those he has called, he will justify by faith. 
And those he has justified, he will adopt and sanctify. And those he is sanctifying, he will glorify. That's your confidence. God has promised. God has already fulfilled the basis of all those promises. And he will continue to fulfill those promises until Christ comes again. Salvation is in the promise of God. And thirdly and finally, salvation is in the good shepherd. That's what Bethlehem teaches us. Salvation is in the good shepherd. Bethlehem was known for one thing as being a shepherd's town. That's one reason it was considered so lowly and insignificant, because it was a shepherd's town. It was surrounded by pastures where shepherds kept their sheep. And shepherds were the lowest of low classes in Judean society. They are considered dirty, untrustworthy, unacceptable people for normal social interactions. David was a shepherd in Bethlehem before he was called to be king. And that is a recurring theme through Scripture, through God's promises, that those who reign, those who rule, will be like the ultimate shepherd king. That kind of rule. Bethlehem makes a statement about what messianic rule looks like. And Micah alludes to it here in verse 4. He says, and he, the Messiah, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. The king from Bethlehem will not rule like earthly tyrants rule. He would be a shepherd king. I've heard many debates about what is the ideal form of government. If you could choose any of all the types of government that have ever been experimented with on the face of the planet, which kind of government would you choose if you were given the ability to choose? Many of us in this country would say democracy. Certainly it seems to have worked pretty well for a couple of centuries. Not much of an experiment yet. The jury's still out in many ways. Certainly, many Americans would never think of choosing monarchy. We've had very strong distaste for monarchy ever since we told King George to take a hike. We associate monarchy with greed and corruption and immorality and oppression. We don't like kings and queens because they exploit the people and make themselves rich. But Jesus came as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And then taught him what kingship and authority looks like in the kingdom of God. It's about serving. He said the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. And that's the nature of authority in the kingdom of God. I mean, think about it. If you could possibly live in a kingdom under a king who always exercised his power and authority only for the good of the people, wouldn't that kind of monarchy be the best kind of kingdom you could ever be a part of? A king who is good and righteous and perfect and loving and who has all power and authority to do all that he wills to do 
And the focus of his will is your well-being for eternity. I'll choose that over democracy any day. You know, the only reason democracy works is because of this biblical concept that underlies it of checks and balances. And why do you need checks and balances? Because our rulers are sinners and we are sinners. But take sin out of the ruler and I want the king of kings. Because he is the true and the ultimate servant, shepherd, king. That's why it says in verses 4 and 5, they, the people, God's people, those who believe the promise and are meek and trust in the King of Kings, they shall dwell secure and he shall be their peace. He will not only give them peace, he will be their peace, this good shepherd king. And that peace is based in peace with God. Because when Jesus came as the shepherd king, he said, and he gave us all of John 10 to describe what his reign is like. And the key verse in John chapter 10 is in verse 11 when he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The king died for his kingdom, for his people. He bore the wrath of God against their sins So that they might be forgiven. And that they might receive his obedience, his righteousness as a gift through faith. It is significant that Jesus wasn't born in a city of wealth and power. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He wasn't born in Athens. He wasn't born in Rome. He wasn't born in London. He wasn't born in Paris. He wasn't born in New York. He was born in Bethlehem. To underline the message of redemption, which is that salvation is from the Lord and from the Lord alone. Human beings would never invent a salvation like this one. It's because of our sin. It's because of the evil in the world that Jesus had to come as a servant. And not as a glorious, powerful king. And not only come as a servant but as a servant even to the point of death on a cross. But the good news is that since he came that way the first time, born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, with no place to lay his head, servant even to the point of death on a cross, because he was raised from the dead and proved to us our sins are forgiven and that we have eternal life in him, He will come again. And when he comes again, he's going to come with all of the glory and the majesty and the power and authority far greater than anything you and I can imagine. And he's coming for the meek who have put their trust in him and his promises. It's all about where your trust lies. Do you trust in the strength of the Lord or in the strength of men? Do you trust in the promises of God or the promises of men? Do you trust in the servant leadership of the King of Kings? Or do you trust in the tyranny of men? Let's pray. Father, we celebrate in this Christmas Advent time, we celebrate the first coming of Christ 
And his coming was in shame and humiliation and insignificance from the world's perspective. But Lord, he came to pay for our sin. He came to bear the wrath of your father, his father, in our place. And he has conquered sin and death. And now he reigns at your right hand. He is our King of kings, our Lord of lords. And one day all the world will see it. And every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you for opening our eyes by your grace. That we might see him by faith now. Strengthen our faith that we might walk in his promises. And may he be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.